Well, again, we are going to be in Acts chapter 6 tonight. And it's funny, it's a short chapter. It's only 15 verses. So Lord willing, we should be able to get through all of it tonight. It should be a one-night study. Um, but as far as this section goes, there's a lot in there. It's a really cool um, reminder of what it should be as followers of Jesus Christ, as people that serve Jesus, what we should be rooted in. We should be rooted in the word of God. We should be filled with the spirit. We should be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks a reason for the hope that is in us. But we should also be united through the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. So tonight we're going to see two things though. We're going to see division and disputing. I mean, that sounds dramatic, right? That sounds like, um, I don't know, some kind of very uh, dramatic show or, or movie or something. If you said those are the two things that characterize the movie or show. But in this case, that's what we're looking at in this section. Um, we're going to see verses 1 through 7 is division. Verse 8 through 15 is the disputing. But I'll tell you, it's so cool to see how the Lord works and moves to bless his people, to protect his church, and to use them to glorify him as they submit to his spirit, to his word. Amen. So with that said, let's look and jump right into chapter six of Acts. Let's look at verse one. It says, now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So right there, right off the bat in the first verse, what we're seeing here is that the church is faced with the threat of division. You see, in verse 1, we're told that the number of the disciples was multiplying. We know that 3,000 came to know the Lord in, in Acts 2, right, in verse 41. 5,000 more in Acts 4.4, 4, and then multitudes were coming to the Lord according to Acts 5.14 because of all of the miraculous works and signs that the apostles and the church were doing. Remember, we read about Peter's shadow even being uh, uh, proclaimed to heal people. Really wild section of scripture in Acts 5. I think it's verse 5, 6, 14 through 16. We see all the healing that's happening. But the reality is the church continued to grow despite the great opposition that it had encountered. You see, externally, the religious leaders of, of Jerusalem, of, of Judaism, they were there and they were constantly threatening and persecuting the apostles, right? We saw that in Acts 4. We saw it in Acts 5. They told them, you have to stop preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus Christ. But you see, we also saw not only the external threats, but internally. I mean, Satan had come and influenced the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira back in Acts chapter 5 in the verse, first half of that chapter where they were lying and they were essentially stealing and cheating the church and stealing and lying to the spirit about land they had sold. And they lied about how much they sold it for so they could keep some back. But as we look at this section here, we see that those difficult and seemingly harmful trials, they ultimately prove to serve as refining instruments in the hand of God to purify and unify the church. And it was really, it made them stronger against the external enemies of Satan and the religious leaders and even those, those, those people like Ananias and Sapphira. But now, internal division began to threaten the church. You see, Jesus said in Mark 3, 24 through 25, he said, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. 
And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. So the enemy's not dumb. He thinks, man, if I'll just divide them, I'll let them eat themselves, right? But the source of division was stated in verse one. It said that it was a complaint, right? It was a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. We read that, and I got to be honest, we look at that and go, what does that mean? I don't know what a Hebrew is versus a Hellenist sometimes. We all know what a Hebrew is. It's a Jew. But we don't know how to, how to make sense of this section. But as we start to break it down, let me just give you a real brief explanation here. It refers to the Jewish people that were native to Israel. That's, that's what a Hebrew is, right? But Hellenists, those were Jewish people, people that either were Jewish or converted to Judaism um, outside of Israel in Gentile regions. So in other words, the Hellenist Jews, they were also known as Grecian Jews because they were commonly from the Greek uh, part of the world. Um, they would be there and they would have their native tongue and they would speak Greek, right? So they would... Uh, the, versus the, the Hebrews, which would have, they would speak in Greek and Aramaic. So they both spoke Greek, but Aramaic versus the native tongues of, of the Hellenists. So wherever they were from, they might have a different dialect, a different speech pattern, right? And so it's interesting because of the way, the language they spoke and the culture they came out of in the world, basically at that time, Hebrews and Hellenists, they did not get along. They butt heads. They were not friends outside of the church, right? But it's funny, when people came to the Lord, when they came to Jesus, you would expect those things to be laid down and to go away, right? Well, in this case, what we see here is that there's this, this division and this worldly pattern of, of, of discrimination, we'll say of assumed discrimination, well, it started to creep into the church, at least in the minds and the hearts of the Hellenists. You see, again, it says here their complaint. Note, it wasn't a, uh, a suggestion. It was a complaint. And they come in here and they say, look it, this is what's happening. Our widows, the Hellenists would say, are being neglected by the Hebrews. They felt discriminated against. They said, man, the widows uh, from our group of people, those true widows, as 1 Timothy 5, 4 through 5, would give that um, the qualifications of what actually qualified someone as a widow. Basically, they would have no children that would be able to provide for them, and they would be expected to be at the church praying and, and serving and being involved. But then the church would step up and help them. So at some point, when those distributions are being given out, the food and the, the money to survive— um, the Hellenist widows were not getting treated, I guess, in the eyes of the Hellenists, the same way as the Hebrew widows, the local widows. And see, it's interesting because the Greek word for complaint in verse one, it's better translated as murmuring. And see, this reveals the spirit of the complaint. Again, this is not just a suggestion. It's not a, um, uh, hey, let's have a conversation about this. They're murmuring. They're getting worked up about this thing. And see, if I can look at this situation and say, this is probably what's happening. The Hellenists were probably seeing a very real occurrence of, of something that happened. They said, hey, our widows did not get the same treatment as the Hebrew widows. And then they attached this very real occurrence to an unreal prejudice. And see, I have to be honest, this sort of thing still happens all the time in the church, especially during seasons of growth or seasons of great busyness. 
Because honestly, it can often be checked up to oversight and maybe even disorganization of sorts. But people coming into the church were, were united in Christ, right? And then someone with good intention absolutely is trying to serve the Lord and somehow forgets someone in the process and does not give them what they expected they, they should get or gives them less than what they gave someone else. And all of a sudden, the enemy enters in. That pride enters in. And you start to say, oh, this is because I'm dot, 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 whatever you want to say. This is because I'm old. Oh, it's because I'm too young. It's because I'm black. It's because I'm white. It's because I'm, uh, you know, slow. It's because I'm fast. I don't know. Whatever the reason is that you might feel discriminated against. See, what happens often in a church setting like this, I've, I've seen it happen. I've been involved with it before. We accidentally <laughs> miss someone in, in, in the ministering process and they get offended. And they go home and they say, this is because everyone doesn't like me. They're just, they, they don't, they have an issue with me. And it's, they stew over it and it becomes not just a, a concern, but now it becomes a murmuring complaint. And can I tell you, this has happened in the church and it's always a bummer because with good intentions, we try to serve everyone and then we miss something <laughs> and it's assumed that, oh man, it's out of a, a heart of hatred or a heart of discrimination or something. But at this point, it's, I believe it's just a simple oversight. The church is multiplying. It's growing out. <laughs> And so what happens here is the church is somehow villainized by some here for trying to help the widows. They're just trying to do what James 1.27 calls pure and undefiled religion before God. Does that just not show us that it doesn't take much to create division? The church leaders said, hey, let's take care of the widows. And somehow someone missed, got, got missed in the process. And they said, oh, we're being uh, discriminated against. And this is a problem. <laughs> So that's what's happening here. Great opportunity for terrible division. It doesn't take much, right? But look at verses two through four. We see the potential solution to this division. It says, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So in verse two, we see the 12 apostles, right? They offer the solution to prevent this potentially divisive problem from continuing to occur. I think it's kind of cool in verse two, note that they're referred to here as the 12, right? That includes Matthias, who we saw become a, an apostle in Acts chapter one, right? to replace Judas Iscariot. That was in Acts 126. We make reference sometimes to the 12 moving forward. The, the body of believers acknowledged and accepted Matthias as one of the apostles. So sometimes people say, well, maybe Matthias is not supposed to be that. Seems like he is the way that Paul makes reference to it. And I'm sorry, the way that Luke makes reference to it. Um, as the anointed leaders though, here's the 12 of them up there. And they come before the body. They gather all of the fellowship together to explain their logic on how to solve this issue and avoid further uh, dissension and further division. And so I think this is great because they're not asking for approval of the body. They're just explaining the logic. They're keeping the body informed as good leaders. And you see, they said right off the bat, they're unable to commit their own focus to the tables, it says. And see, you might say, well, what kind of tables? Is this like a table where we serve food like meals at? 
The tables here in verse two really refer to the tables where distribution was given out. So it could be food, but it probably wasn't like prepared meal. It was probably the, the, the um, ingredients and whatnot to go home and make your own food, I would imagine. And also like money, provision to survive, right? For those widows, again, that were actual qualified widows in the church. And so they said, look, we don't have the time personally and the, uh, the, the ability to go and do this right now because we need to be focused on the word of God and prayer. See, I think that's awesome because how terrible would it be for the church to stop doing the things that they're supposed to do because they're, they're, they're trying to become physical social services for people? Can I be clear? It's a good thing when the church can fill the gaps and can do those things and take care of people out there, feed the, to feed and to clothe those that are in need. We should be doing those things. But to put the word of God and prayer and the things, the living water, <laughs> to put that on the altar of sacrifice in the name of saying we have to go and save the world and, and feed everyone, do it. There should be a balance in that. And we should not do one Oh, like in the name of the other. So in other words, I just told you a minute ago, James 127, it says that's a pure undefiled religion for the Lord, like to visit orphans and widows in their time of need, right? But we don't throw away the word of God to do that. First things first, we have to be teaching the word. We have to be preaching the word. So many churches have become social services instead of lampstands in a very dark world. God forbid we should become such a church. And see, what it says here is they said, look, at our primary call and our responsibility is to study and to teach and to preach the word of God to win souls to Christ. Amen, right? That's the very thing that the church should be focused on doing first and foremost. Everything else comes in place after that, right? But that said, it doesn't mean that these guys, these apostles, were not able to to do the, the, the work, to minister in any other role, right? We shouldn't think that, okay, just, just because they're, they're apostles, they, they, they can no longer serve others. By no means is that the case. I'll tell you, as a pastor, you find yourself doing all kinds of random service and ministry things, right? I'm kind of living that life right now as far as like, you know, meeting in a hotel and setting up every week and getting things, you know, there's a lot of task at hand. But delegation is a very blessed thing when we can delegate those things out. But again, I shouldn't get so into getting a hotel set up that I'm not focused in the word. There has to be a balance on those things, right? And so what the apostles are saying is, hey, we have to be in the word and be focused in on this. And we don't want to be so overwhelmed that we can't do the very things we were called to do. And see, it. Re remember in Exodus 18, when Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, he called Moses aside after a long day of ministering to the people. Moses had been hearing all the cases of the people and trying to rightly judge them all. And he just told him, hey, you're going to have to recruit others to help you in this thing. Right? He actually said in Exodus 18, verse 17 through 18, he said, the thing that you do is not good, Moses, but you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out for this thing is too much for you. You're not able to perform it by yourself. And see, so with that exhortation from his father-in-law, Moses appointed judges uh, beside himself to handle the smaller things. It said in Exodus 18, 26, the hard cases they brought to Moses, but the other people, the other men judged uh, every small case themselves. 
So in other words, Moses no longer had to handle everything. He delegated some of the work. He delegated that out to others. And see here in verses three through four, the apostles are calling for others to be appointed just like that to help better serve these needs within the fellowship of believers. The word for serve in verse two is actually diakoneo. And it's where we get our word deacon from. And this is the origin of deacons in, in, the, in the modern church, right? It's so cool. We see that there's seven men. They say, hey, you guys, the congregation, the body, find seven men that meet some qualifications, right? First of all, I want to note seven's a cool number because it's a number of completion in scripture. It's kind of a holy number, right? Um, also, it was the number of men needed in Jewish uh, heritage and culture to constitute as an official council. There's also seven days in a week. So if you pick seven guys, maybe you could create a rotation. I love having rotations of ushers or rotations of, of sound people at, at whenever we have a, a ministry, right? It's good to have a rotation. So these men, these seven men that the body would pick out. See, the men, the, the, the apostles said, hey, what they have to do is they have to qualify by having a good reputation, being full of the spirit and full of wisdom. Did you note this here? The concern was not about popularity. They didn't say, hey, they have to have 100,000 followers on Instagram. <laughs> of course not. They didn't have Instagram. But you know what I mean? They didn't have to be popular and loved by and known by everyone. They didn't have to have this impressive public persona. But it was based on evidence of an honest, godly character. See, the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord is not like man. He doesn't look at the outside. He looks at the inward part, at the heart, right? First Samuel 16, 7, I believe it is, it says that. And see, in this case, any man considered for this role of deacon, he needed to be known for being both spiritually and practically wise. You see, they, they should display a lifestyle that matches the qualifications that Paul later wrote for deacons in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 10. It said, deacons must be reverent, not double tongues, so speaking out of both sides of their mouth, right? Not given to much wine, so they shouldn't be drunkards. Not greedy for money, so that's an important one if they're going to be handling money and stuff that we don't want them stealing from us. And holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. You see, but let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. Such good counsel from, from Paul to say, and really from the Lord, inspired word of God, right? This says, when you're picking out deacons, don't just put them in office immediately. Let them prove themselves through their lifestyle, that they're a man of character, of good, honest integrity. And let them do these things that are listed here. Allow them to, to not be given to wine and not be greedy. Let, them that, let that be proven that they don't backbite. And then in 1 Timothy 3.11, it describes that blessed reward of remembrance before the Lord for those who serve as deacons well. And see, their role why it's so important, why there's a blessed reward is because their role frees up the pastor, the apostle in this case, right? In Acts 6, the leadership, it allows them to focus on the thing that God has asked them to do as well. And the whole body operates in a way that glorifies God. Everyone's God-given tasks and using their God-given talents to fill those things. Man, with proper devotion, it's so important. So there's this balance as deacons come in now we can hand some stuff off so that not so we can do less work as a pastor teacher, but so that we can be committed to do our job even better. So what a blessing when deacons are involved, right? But did you note in verse four, it actually said here, right? That they would, 
let me find the exact wording. It says, we want to be continually given to prayer and to the ministry of the word. I think that's important. We think pastors, all they do is preach and teach and study the word. But there's a, first and foremost, they need to be men of prayer. And that's always convicting to me. I feel like I need to always spend even more time in prayer. I know we're, we pray without ceasing, according to Thessalonians, right? But the idea of really spending that committed time to pray. But I will tell you before I teach a study, man, as I'm prepping this study, there's a lot of prayer that goes into that. Because I believe effective teaching and effective preaching is empowered by effective prayer. <laughs> and so those things have to go together and you have to have time to do it. You can't be running around dealing with all these other tasks that can be handled by uh, these, these other qualified men. And so that's what the suggestion is. And look what happens in verse five through six. It says, and the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip. Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. So verse five states that the saying pleased the whole multitude. So what the, the apostles presented to the body, they all loved it. They said, this is good. This is a good idea. You see, a divided group is now being united again due to this wise solution that I think, no doubt, it certainly was revealed by the Spirit of God after much prayer and consideration. They didn't just like shoot from the hip on this one. They went and prayed about it. And I think the Lord showed them the right thing. And see, what it says, seven men were nominated by the people and they were appointed by the apostles to be deacons. And did you note something here in their names? Maybe you didn't note it, but I noted it because I read commentators that told me this. I'm not this smart, but they're all Greek names. They're all names that suggest that they were all Hellenists themselves. You see, Nicholas is noted as being even a proselyte, meaning that he wasn't even a Jew, but a Greek converted to Ju Judaism and then converted to Christianity. So this would mean that all of these Hellenistic Jews and Hellenistic men, they stand before the people to oversee the distribution. Certainly that would relieve any of the supposed concerns of the Hellenistic discrimination. Hellenists are not going to discriminate against other Hellenists, right? This right away, it just is such a, a wise solution. They said, you guys are concerned that the Hebrews are cheating you. Let's put a bunch of Hellenists up here to make sure you're comfortable with who we're appointing here. I think that's just so cool. In this section of names, we actually have, or this group of names, we have two names that stand out very prominent. We have Stephen and we have Philip. Both of them are going to be key figures in Acts 7 and 8, respectively. We'll get there in the next couple of weeks. But those are the, that's how Luke does this. He introduces people. Uh, he did this with Barnabas a couple chapters ago. He's going to do this with Saul in chapter 7 and 8, who eventually becomes Paul, right? So he slowly introduces people. He's introducing us to Stephen and Philip because they'll become key players. And we'll start to see Stephen even in this chapter. But the men that were chosen to be deacons. They were brought before all of the assembly, right? And brought before the apostles so that the apostles could pray over them as they set forth to minister to the body. See, any and all Christian service, it needs to be steeped in prayer. Not just the preparing of the word, not just the, the pastor teachers and the apostles in this case that say, hey, we have to be committed to prayer and to, to teaching. Every service under the Lord, whether you're serving in children's ministry, sound ministry, if you're going out and doing street witnessing, whatever you do, you may think if you're sweeping the floors at the church, 
It should be steeped in prayer because you're serving the Lord. You want to make sure you're, you're doing it unto him. And so it's important that you be praying for these in these positions and be prayed over in these positions. So it's so cool. The apostles, they lay hands on them, right? This expresses a commissioning and a granting of authority to serve in this new capacity. You see, this is important. The people are all watching this happen. They're watching this. They're, they're like witnessing this ordination of sorts of the deacons. And I think it's for two reasons. It serves as an example to the people to say, man, I want to strive to be a deacon. I want to strive to be in that position. So it kind of raises the bar in ministry. Man, I want to I meet those qualifications. That's a good thing. But also, I think it set an expectation for the deacons. An expectation that the body said, okay, you guys now are signing up to do the things that we expect of you. You better maintain that character. You better walk in these things. I'm not talking about perfection, but the exception is sin. The rule is that we walk in as blameless as possible. Okay. So the expectation is, man, you guys are deacons. We're going to, we are going to elevate you a little bit. Some people think it's unfair that we be elevating like the, the people that are deacons, elders, and pastors, teachers. I would counter that by saying, why don't you try to live up to the exalted level that people have put yet? You may say, well, it's not fairly exalted. I mean, we know that. Hopefully their eyes are on Jesus. But when you sign up for an office and you sign up for a role to serve the Lord, strive to fulfill it well. Amen. And so as we go on here, what it says is that all of these men, they, they, they were basically the apostles, as they laid their hands on them, they were acknowledging God's call upon these men. They were simply acknowledging what the Lord had already been doing in their lives to bring him glory. And now they were to walk it out as commissioned deacons, as servants unto the Lord, as bond servants. And see, it says in 1 Timothy 4.14, do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. And see, there's something the Lord has called you to. There's a, a ministry, there is a place in the church that the Lord says, you have been knit and made for this thing. And you might be right now feeling like you're just so out of fellowship and you don't know where you should be. Seek the Lord and don't neglect the things that he's given you to minister to his body and for his glory, amen? Seek the Lord in those things and you watch, the Lord's gonna bless it, right? And so look what happens in verse seven. We see the results of the solution. It says, then the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So this, this opportunity, or I'm sorry, this threat of, an, of division in the church, it's basically been extinguished now. And instead of, of, of the church falling apart the church, it so easily could have been destroyed by this division. Instead, it was distinguished by the wise action of the leaders and the obedience and the cooperation of the body. And you see now, we see that it continues. The multiplying of, 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 of disciples is coming out because the church is united and going out and doing what it's supposed to be doing instead of focusing on division. And see, I love that. When the complaint arose, let's be clear, it was not ignored it was not dismissed. It was not disregarded by leadership. They undoubtedly, they, they heard it and they said, man, this is murmuring, but let's see if there's any kind of truth to this. And when they realized that, yeah, some Hellenistic widows were being neglected, they went over and they sought the Lord and they said, Lord, what should we do about this? And the solution became clear. I have no doubt they prayed through this, right? 
Well, then the body, they, they wisely accepted that solution that the apostles had received from the Lord. They said, this is the solution for this, this division. And the body, depicting their trust in their leadership, said, this is a good thing. We trust you guys in this. We want to follow you as our leaders, as we've trusted that you've sought the Lord and that this will solve the issue. And then you needed seven men that would be willing to step into this somewhat unglamorous, um, uncelebrated role as a deacon. Many people think deacons are just guys with strong backs that are at church a lot, right? It's like they're here to like lift the, the move the chairs and move tables and things. But as we saw from the qualifications, there's they should be filled with the spirit and wisdom, ready to minister unto others in the name of the Lord. And so we see all of these believers in the body, the leadership and the body itself, they are yielding to the spirit. And the issue was handled without divisive consequences. It reminds me of Psalm 133, one, which says, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to, to dwell together in unity. You see the unity of the church, it only strengthened their testimony to the world. You see, even Jewish priests, it said in verse seven, right? It said a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. That means that they left the stronghold of Judaism, believing upon Jesus and walked in obedience to his commandments. You say, how did that happen? Because a united church went out and preached the gospel. Instead of focusing on a great division, the church was able to focus on the great commission. <laughs> see, Matthew 28, 19 said, go and make disciples of all the nations, right? baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you, Jesus said. So go teach them to obey. And the only reason they would obey was because they believe in the name of Jesus Christ. And these priests began to be obedient to the faith because they, were, they received the gospel from a united church that was not split by division. Amen? And so as we pray and seek the Lord in those moments of division in the church, if we are willing to submit and yield to the spirit, man, it will unite us. It will refine us. It will make us more like the Lord. And we will be even more effective to go out and preach the gospel of the world. And the world will see unity rather than division in the church. And I think that just makes it even more appealing. I mean, the gospel itself is the appeal, right? But when you see a, a healthy church body preaching it, man, so much better than a bunch of hypocrites that all hate each other. <laughs> And gospel strong and mighty to work, even in a divisive church, to bring in new people. But here's the reality. When the church is united in Jesus Christ, I believe the gospel goes out in, in just such more, with such much more salt and light to it. It doesn't look like hypocrisy. Amen. And so the last section that we have here, we go from division to disputing verses eight through 15. Look at verse eight. We're going to see a little more about Stephen and his attributes. It says, and Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. <laughs> Wait a minute. I thought Stephen was just a deacon. I thought he was one of these guys with a strong back that could just move things around and do things that pastors didn't want to have to deal with, right? Well, in verse 8, we're told here by Luke, this description of, of, of Stephen, it reveals that his life was a powerful, bold witness for Jesus. You see, it's noticed that it's noted, I'm sorry, that Stephen was full of faith and it's translated as grace in some places. So you could say he was full of grace as well, but that comes when you're full of faith. 
If you're full of faith, it means you understand the grace of Jesus Christ and you should respond by walking in that grace. He's also full of power. And so that word for power is the dunamis power of the Holy Spirit. And see, between verses 3 and verse 8, you put those together, we find out that Stephen was a wise, spirit-filled man whose fullness of faith allowed him to walk in grace and perform great miracles and signs and wonders for the name of Jesus. Again, please don't limit deacons to just being practical task men, right? Just to go do these, these menial heavy lifting tasks. I keep saying heavy lifting because that's what I think of. We always think deacons are guys that we get to do the hard things that we don't want to do as pastors. That's incorrect. We don't want to limit deacons to that. They can be utilized by God for great spiritual purposes. And again, that word for power that says that Stephen was filled with power, it's dunamis. And in verse eight there, it reminds us of the promise of Jesus in Acts 1.8, where he said, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That word power is dunamis. He says, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth, right? And so we now know that that wasn't just limited to just the apostles. Here's a guy like Stephen, who's a deacon. And he has that dunamis power to, to represent Jesus Christ, to be a witness. But also beyond that, we know that in Acts 2.39, Peter proclaimed that the Holy Spirit is given to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And guess what, brother and sister in Christ? That's you and I. We are very afar off, right? We're not near Israel. If you're listening anywhere in the United States, right? I'm in McKinney, Texas. I am afar off geographically. But through the blood of Jesus Christ, I have been brought in close. And now I have received that dunamis power of the Holy Spirit so that I may, through the profession of my faith in Jesus, receive that power to serve him and live as a testimony, just like Stephen. Amen. And so look what happens in verse 9 through 10. We see a dispute arises between some zealous Jewish men and a spirit-filled Stephen. Look at what it says here in verse 9 through 10. It says, then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. So, okay, here's what we have here. In verse 9, we have this group of men that were part of this Jewish assembly or synagogue, and the synagogue was called the synagogue of the freedmen. You say that's a weird name. Why were they called that? Commentators seem to think that they were likely uh, once captives of foreign lands and they were freed. And that's why they called, they called themselves the synagogue of freedmen. They had, they had practiced Judaism after they received that freedom. And they came from places like North Africa. That's where the cities of Serene and Alexandria were located. Modern day Turkey, that's referred to as Asia in verse nine. And the Roman province of Cilicia. So you have these guys from all these different regions, but they're Jews. They're, they're practicing Judaism. Well, these men, they came and they disputed with Stephen. And you got to assume certainly this was an attempt to disprove the claims of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why argue with Stephen about anything else? It wasn't important to them. Stephen being full of the spirit and bold, he's going out and he's preaching the gospel. And I'm sure he sees this synagogue of the freed men. He says, man, I'm going to tell them about Jesus. That they don't need to live that life of ritualistic religion. And they don't need to live that life of sacrifice after sacrifice Jesus according to Hebrews 10 10 is the final sacrifice to take away sins so Stephen sees them and he says I'm gonna go tell them about Jesus and see as he is talking with them it turned into a dispute 
And that dispute turns into a debate and an argument, I guess. And in verse 10, it says that the men were unable to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which Stephen spoke. See, I love this because it proves again that Stephen was well studied in the word. To be able to speak with such confidence the things of the Lord, you should be familiar with the word. The more studies you hear, the more Bible you read, the better equipped you are to stand as a witness for Jesus Christ. And see, he was prepared to contend earnestly for the faith as Jude 1 verse 3 calls us and exhorts us to do as well. And again, it was not just a practically strong deacon they were dealing with. Yes, he was a deacon, but spiritually he was filled with the spirit and wise in, in, in the things of the Lord. It reminds me of 1 Peter 3.15. It says, always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You see, we should have be loaded up with the word, filled with the spirit. And it's that combination, I think, of preparedness by knowing the word of God, having it tucked away in your heart, and being spirit-filled so that the spirit can empower your peach, your peach, come on, your speech, just as Stephen was empowered by the spirit. You see, Jesus told us in Luke 21, 14 through 15, he said, therefore, settle it in your hearts, not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. And see, what I think about that is, yes, we need to have the word tucked away. But you also don't need to have some polished, perfect sermon or study prepared. You don't need to have that perfect delivery mentally memorized. The Lord, through the power of his spirit, will give you recollection of the things you've heard in studies, the things that you've read in his word, the memory verses that you've stuck into your mind, right, into your brain. Those things, the Lord says, Jesus, he says, don't worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will bring those things and speak through you. And see, these zealots, they stood no chance of defeating the spirit of the living God who resided in Stephen by his faith in Jesus Christ. As 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, it says, we are the temple, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, of the living God. That blows my mind anytime I think about that. There's no business, like I have no business being a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Especially, I still fall short. I still sin and I look at those situations and I go, oh Lord. Why would you choose this jacked up, broken vessel? But that is why. You see, just like I believe it's 2 Corinthians uh, 4, 7, I believe it says. It says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence and the power may not be of us, but that it may be of God. So that people look at us, these broken vessels, and they say, man, there's something powerful in you. <laughs> there is new life in you. And see, that would be the case with Stephen. Here's a man they didn't expect to be able to speak and with such boldness and with such confidence in the word of God filled with the spirit. And they couldn't even respond to everything he was saying. So look what happens here. Look at verses 11 through 14. We're almost done. It says, then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, speaking of the temple, and change the customs of Moses delivered to us, speaking of the Mosaic law. So 
Being unable to resist or disprove the words of Stephen regarding Jesus Christ, these zealous men secretly go induce other men to falsely accuse Stephen. I don't know about you guys, but we've seen this before, right? <laughs> this is exactly what happened to Jesus, right? False charges. These men are making the same bogus claims, saying the same things. They said, hey, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They accuse Jesus of the same thing, right? And at the end of the day, it's the same thing that they want, that the religious leaders wanted for Jesus. These men want Stephen killed. They want him stoned to death in the streets, hopefully for blasphemy, right? Like, how ironic is this, by the way, that this group that calls themselves the freed men, right? They're they turn out to be completely enslaved to pride and to wickedness that's driving them to unjustly silence the voice of Stephen even unto death. It's, it's insane, right? They think they're righteous and they're wicked. In verse 12, it says that they also stirred up the people, the elders, and the scribes to rise up against Stephen. This is exactly what happened to Jesus Christ with the religious leaders that opposed him. And you say, man, why does this happen? Can I just tell you what Jesus said in John 15, 18 through 20? He said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the, world, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep your word. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. You see, Jesus said, look, at they don't know the one true God. They don't know Jesus Christ, the Christ who the Lord had sent. That's where everlasting life is. According to John 17, 3, Jesus prayed that. And in this case, he says, the world doesn't accept you because it rejects me. It's going to reject you when you stand for my name. And that said, Steve, Stephen is ceased. He's arrested and brought before the council, the Sanhedrin, the same group of guys that condemned Jesus to death. And see, in verse 13 through 14, it tells us the false accusations that were presented against Stephen at the trial, right? They said that he spoke blasphemous words against the temple and against the Mosaic law. And that, that, that Jesus of Nazareth would destroy the temple and change the customs of Moses, right? See, we know that Jesus was accused of doing the very same things by the zealous religious leaders in Matthew 26, 59 through 61. Of course, Jesus never blasphemed anything, right? He didn't blaspheme the temple. When he said, I will knock down this temple, right? Destroy this temple in three days, rise it again, right? He's speaking of his own body, right? But they didn't hear it because they didn't want to know him. They didn't want to know what his word meant. They heard it and said, oh, he's being blasphemous. Let's kill him because we've already rejected him in our hearts. Let's reject him physically. When they also said things like, oh, he tries to, to abolish the law of Moses, right? Jesus said, no, no, no. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. And see, the reality is here is that just like when Jesus told all these men this, they didn't want to hear his words because they didn't believe in him. Stephen is telling them the same thing again, that man, Jesus Christ, he is the one that we should be serving, not the temple. Don't idolize the temple. Don't idolize its sacrificial system. See, Stephen knew, he understood 
that Jesus Christ was the final sacrifice sent by God to be the propitiation for our sins, as 1 John 4.10 says. Again, I said it earlier, I'll say it again. Ritualistic religion was never, ever the pathway to salvation, even in the Old Testament. It was a faith-based covenant that you expressed through some sort of sacrificial system, right, through the law. But when Jesus came, especially it's been fulfilled now. He lived perfectly and then died in our place. There's no need to try to fulfill the law. The law was there as a tutor, Galatians 3, 24 and 25 tells us, to guide us into Christ, to guide us into faith. But once that faith has come, we're no longer under that law. It's been fulfilled. And see, we think about this. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God, according to 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Man, Imagine Stephen proclaiming to re these religious, self-righteous zealots that, man, in Christ alone will you know justification, sanctification, and glorification in God. He shut down their whole system of self-righteousness, their whole ritualistic religion, their whole temple. He says, that stuff, that's not where it's at anymore. It's in Christ alone. And, man, that infuriated them. And see, in verse 15, we see how this all concludes. It says here, And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. <laughs> so they're all slaying these false accusations at Stephen, right? Verse 15 says that while all those accusations are being hurled against Stephen, the council stared at him steadfastly, right? They're looking at him to see what he's going to do. And they saw his face, and it became like that of an angel. The anointing was upon him, the, the, that radiance of the Holy Spirit. And see, you say, how do we get this detail? Was Luke in the room for this? I'll tell you who was a member of the Sanhedrin, a guy named Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle. I believe that Paul, he had that, that memory, man, that image of this glorious countenance of Stephen forever seared into his brain, man, into his memory. Paul probably told Luke about this and says, man, I'll never forget that kid, Stephen. He was radiating, right? He, you could tell he was anointed and filled with the spirit of the one true God. It's reminiscent of Moses in Exodus 34, 29 through 35, whose face would shine after he came down from the mount, after he came down from the presence of the Lord. And see, just like Jesus, though, Stephen, he stood silently. He did not defend himself against these false charges, but he entrusted his life into the hands of his sovereign heavenly father. Remember Isaiah, 1,700 no, years before Jesus was born, he wrote, like a sheep being led to the slaughter, he did not open his mouth. That's in reference to the Messiah. Jesus, with all the false accusations being thrown against him, did not open his mouth to defend himself or to get himself out of it. He trusted in his father's will, knowing that the father's perfect plan would most glorify God the Father and would result in salvation, right? And see, in this case, Stephen could also trust that whatever the outcome may be of this trial, God would be glorified through his life in it. And I'll tell you, God will be glorified mightily by one of the greatest sermons ever. It's going to be preached in Acts 7. We'll start it next week. I don't think we'll finish it in one week. But Acts 7 is probably one of the, the best sermons you're ever, going to, you're ever going to read in Scripture. 
And it comes from Stephen, a deacon, <laughs> a guy that we would say, oh, he's not a pastor teacher, right? It shows us that through the power of the spirit, trusting in, in Jesus Christ, trusting in the, the sovereign will of God, when we're filled with the spirit and filled with the word, we will be used and given occasion to preach the gospel and people will come to faith. Amen. And see, in this case, just like we said last week, this opposition, right? These men that are disputing against Stephen, this opposition gave occasion for testimony. Man, may we live in the same kind of boldness as Stephen. When we're put in situations where we go, man, I don't want to be here. This is a tough trial. This is a tough occasion to be in. But the Lord says, man, I'm giving you a chance. Because of that opposition, you can preach the gospel now. You can preach that Jesus Christ is alive and well, working through the power of his spirit in these broken vessels that are the church, amen? And see, this is the gospel that man has sinned. You and I were sinners, we are sinners. But until we put our trust in Jesus Christ, our sin is intact, standing ever before the Father. But when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, he goes from being our judge to our advocate. He stands in our place and we receive the righteousness of God credited to our account, our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. And that guilt and that shame that was once upon our shoulders is just removed because of the work of Jesus Christ. And this is the message that Jesus says, go tell everyone, regardless of the trial that may come, regardless of the opposition that may come, you go tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it's what everyone needs. And at the end of the day, man, no one will stand before God and say, well, I never heard about Jesus. If you've heard, you have to respond. And when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're adopted in as a son or daughter, according to John 1.12. So praise the Lord for Jesus' sacrifice. Praise the Lord for his willingness to give his spirit and allow us to be witnesses unto him in this dark world. Let's be about it. Let's go out and be bond servants of Jesus Christ, just like Stephen. And let's not be divided. Let's be united in seeking the Lord and being filled with his spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, heavenly father, we come before you now, Lord, and we just thank you for your word tonight, Lord. Father, we thank you for your willingness to include us in your work, Lord. Father, I thank you for just the, the role of deacons, Lord, the opportunity that men have to serve you. Men and women can step up and serve you. Lord, I thank you for the ability to do this in the power of your spirit, Lord. But Father, more than anything, I thank you for your cross, Lord Jesus. I thank you for your resurrection. God, thank you for that way of salvation, Lord. And right now, if you're listening online or you're watching during the week or whatever it may be, if you haven't put your trust in Jesus Christ, if you haven't said, I trust in you as my Lord and Savior, today is the day of salvation. You can begin that walk with Jesus Christ, that commitment, that relationship with a simple prayer. You begin it here. You'd say, Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I trust in you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.